This is Clay T. White, director of UNLV's Oral History Research Center. Support for the Latinx Voices Unveil series is provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities, MGM Resorts International, the Commission for the Las Vegas Centennial, Mark and Marianne Haley, Envy Energy, and the Culinary Workers Union Local 226. UNLV's Oral History Research Center presents Latinx Voices Unveiled series. Today's episode is brought to you by the Latinx Voices of Southern Nevada Oral History Project, a UNLV Libraries initiative to record the marginalized voices of the Latinx community. This series is produced by the UNLV Rebel Media Group. Hello and welcome back to our Latinx Voices Unveiled series where we're exploring the Latinx Voices Oral History Project. I'm Natalie Martinez, and today we are going to explore the flavors of the Latinx community. Today I'm here with Elsa Lopez and Monse Hernandez. Awesome. Thank you all for joining me. And today we're going to talk about food. Now, let's start off with sharing some of our favorite foods of our culture. What did we grow up with? Oh my gosh. Okay. I would have enfrijoladas a lot, which it's it's the most simple thing. It's just tortillas and then beans and cheese. And then I also love green tamales. So those are my top two. With me, uh, my favorite food is hands down my mom's chicken enchiladas with um, salsa verde. Um, so traditionally, enchiladas are with red sauce. But my mom, being from Mexico City, they have a different way of making them. And so uh, salsa verde enchiladas are my favorite. And for me, I go straight to my Salvadorian roots, and I'm a huge fan of pupusas. I stick with the classic revuelta, um, which is a mix of meat, which is, I think, primarily beef, if I'm correct. Um, I just eat them. Beef, um, cheese, and uh, frijoles, um, and classic cheese. Those are my two favorite with little curtido, which is kind of like coleslaw with some tomato sauce and then extra tomato sauce. And mm, I'm already savoring it in my mouth. Um, So today we're going to dive into all the different aspects of food and what it is and what it means to our community. So today we're going to listen to a sound clip from Arturo Ochoa, a retired CCSD principal and co-founder of the foundation to assist young musicians known as FAME, F-A-Y-M. And this is his story about how he and his Caucasian wife, Cindy, made their own tradition of making tamales at Christmas and when they first got married and blended their families. But it was the neatest thing. So, you know, Cindy, even though she is, is Caucasian, uh, has embraced the, uh, the culture. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the traditions that she and I started our first Christmas together, a tradition for Christmas food is tamales. It's a tradition. So our first Christmas that we were together, I told Cindy's children that on such and such a day, make no plans, they belong to me because we're making tamales. And they thought it was child labor and that it was wrong, (laughs) and that they griped and groaned, but the day came and we made tamales as a family. The following year, uh, right around Thanksgiving, my stepchildren were asking me, what day are we making tamales? Why? I want to invite my friends over. 34 years, all of them show up, grandkids show up, spouses of the kids show up, friends of the kids show up. It's, it's this neat thing. For 34 years, we've, we have this humongous gathering um, where there is no, it's, it's not celebrating a culture, 
it's just celebrating us, who we are. It's, it's the neatest thing. So we, uh, our, our kids are incredible. We, we have trained them in, in all aspects of tamal making. <laughs> so we, we take poetic license, but it, to me, it's, it's a gathering of love. Uh, I, I walked by some of the grandkids. They were having this little argument uh, about who had the most experience. Well, I got six years experience making the money. Well, I've got four years. Well, I got seven years. <laughs> I'm trying to wonder. It was the cutest thing to hear the grandkids talking. Yes. You know, so it's a, it's, it's a neatest thing that all the grandkids, they, they start as, as olive boy or olive girl, where they just put in an olive into the tamal as, as it goes down the line. But they've all graduated to, they can, they can work any part of the line. They're, they're, they're very capable. <laughs> They're very well educated. Oh, gosh, yes. It's a master, a mastery <laughs> thing. <laughs> it's, and you know, they, my, my wife is, we're both educators. My wife is, is very much in, into the, into the game playing edge. Whenever we get a new person come and survive a, a tamal making experience with us, <laughs> they get an actual certificate that they are, um, yeah, yes, uh, <laughs> that, that they are, uh, that they, 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 they have earned the certificate by their by their performance on such and such a day. You know, she, That's so we have a little ceremony where we, we're <laughs> giving their certificate. Uh, so it's it's a it's a cute thing that uh, we embrace. Who we are. He talked about how it was a way that he embraced his culture and united two different cultures through tamales. What does that mean to you when it comes to seeing food as a way to unite cultures? I can really resonate with his story about making tamales. It's definitely something that brings together family. Um, there have been times where I've invited friends of mine who are who are not Mexican to come in and like have some food. Um, specifically, whenever I go to Arizona, we have my extended family, um, one side of which they're American, so they get to come in and during Thanksgiving... They make uh, turkey, and then we make tamales verdes, and we get to have it all. And just, you know, it's really nice because when you think of the dinner table, it's a place where everyone can come together, and we can share foods and stories, obviously. So, yeah, it's it's appreciation. And I think it's really cool that in a time where, like, we're navigating appropriation versus appreciation, these kinds of things that come up, this is um, one way that I'm like, yeah, this is definitely appreciation, and it feels good. It feels right. Me personally, I know exactly what he's talking about when he talks about the line and how they're working the line. And so usually like you'll have someone set um like set up the leaves and then someone does the masa uh, or the dough to make tamales. And then you have like your beef and your salsas. I remember the first time I brought my boyfriend over to make tamales. He's from El Salvador. So he he's had tamales, but not like Mexican tamales like that. So when he saw the process, and how long it took us it's very intricate and very complicated and so when he saw the process and when he was making them with me and my family he's like okay I have a whole other respect for you know Mexican tamales and so the, I completely understand when he where he comes from Arturo when he says that it was a way of blending their families together and making their own traditions absolutely no and 
Monse, you talked about how art and his wife were making new traditions to unite their cultures and unite their families. So let's talk about how food is a tradition and how it plays a role in our community in developing these new customs that we practice every year, whether it's on Nochebuena or at a quince or at a cumpleaños. So let's talk about how sharing food recipes is a way of passing down our culture. Here we have Eloisa Martinez, a Las Vegas small business philanthropist. Let's listen to how she makes tamales and how they have to be made traditionally or you risk the danger of losing your culture. Well, first of all, uh, Cinco de Mayo is my big day. I mean, I could celebrate for three days as far as that's concerned. We celebrate because we were all born in American. We follow the American, but we don't forget the Latino Navidad. That's the day I make tamales. Ooh, two days, man. We're on there making those tamales. My son's a fisherman in Alaska, and he's coming Monday, I think. Yeah, he's going to be here Monday. So he tells me before he wanted me to go. He said, Mama, why don't you come here? I'll send you for the ticket. You can come here, but don't bring any clothes. I said, it's 100 degrees under Fahrenheit. What do you mean no clothes? Well, the only thing you've got to bring is hojas and chile and all that thing so you can make my tamale. <laughs> he could care less if I froze, right? <laughs> but he says, I'm coming. Do you think you can make tamales before? I said, I will, mijito. You know I will. So I'm going to make him some tamales. I'm going to freeze him. So if I freeze him, put in a certain little cooler, he could probably take it back. Mm-hmm. You know, because it doesn't take but one day to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, so that'll be fine, but I think that is, he loves those tamales. Mm -hmm. And he likes the cheese tamales with rajas de chile verde. Mm -hmm. You know, the green, that's the kind that he likes. He likes the chicken. Uh, He said, I'm not that crazy about the sweet ones, but the kids like the sweet ones, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and then I make uh, chile uh, rojo con carne de puerco, Mm -hmm. you know. So I make all four, and it's a process. It's a process. My daughter says, well, why can't you get those little machines? I said, you're losing the culture. And she learned how to make them. She saw me so many times. She said, Mom, I'm going to surprise you last year. She said, what? I don't want you to be here. You go do everything because I'm going to. But by the time I come back, you're going to have something. I'm going to surprise you. So she did. I had made the arena. And I put it in the refrigerator, and she probably feel, oh, I don't have to do that, but I know how to make it. And she did the chicken. She did, oh, she did a good job. You know, she she soaked the leaves. You know. So that was good. Mm-hmm. So that means that they picked up on things, right? Because I'm not going to be around tomorrow. Well, I hope so, but not tomorrow. I got to wait till next week. <laughs> <laughs> so she talked about how... It takes only, she talked about it takes two days, first of all, to take to make tamales. So it depends on it depends on how many you're making. Okay. <laughs> how many you're making, um how much time you have. But I would say roughly from prepping to the actual cooking, it can take anywhere between like seven to ten hours. And I understand where she meant like it, it can take up to two days because like you can do it in sections and prep everything beforehand. And so I completely understand where she's coming from. Especially if she's doing it on her own, which it it almost sounded like sometimes she gets some help. But I know that whenever I have like Diaz who 
get help, then you're right. It might be like a couple hours, but if not, then it's definitely a long process. Well, yeah, and as you can tell, I'm I'm learning here with all of you.、Um, just a quick question: Why are the sweet ones pink? Because they put food coloring in it. Oh, okay, just to make it special. Yeah, just to make it special and to and、um, so like they add sugar, and then my mom、um, also adds jelly, like strawberry jelly, so that also changes the color. And I think that's something that Eloisa talks about as well in regards to passing down those recipes.、Um, so, do you plan on making them with jelly too, and making and ch- sharing that with your family, with your future kids? Yes, definitely.、Um, like I mentioned before, my boyfriend when he's when he had our tamales, his favorite ones were the sweet ones too. I personally don't like them; I think they're too sweet. But he can eat like sometimes even because they're smaller. He'll eat five or six at, in one sitting because he's like. These are amazing. I'm like, okay, if you like them, I guess I'll learn how to make them too. You know, and so it's it's really incredible to be able to share your culture with someone. Yeah. Why do you think it's so important?、Um, and this is a common theme that we see in the Latinx community. Why do you think it's so important that you learn your family recipes and keep that tradition alive through food? Why? Well, I think personally because I have so much. Love and appreciation for my tias and or like just whomever made food when I was growing up. It was these celebrations. I mean, I think I cannot stress enough how like how exciting and like just there were so many people there, and with all these people, I've made many memories. And I I definitely want that to continue on. So, you know, if I ever have kids, I want them to experience that too. But how can they if I don't you know put a little bit of effort into Um, continuing on that tradition. Yeah, I think it's important to learn your、um, family res- recipes because, to me personally, when I eat food that my family made, it feels like home. And if I'm like somewhere else, and you know, like I can try Mexican food or Tex-Mex food and stuff, but it never really like tastes like home until I have food that either my mom or my sister made, or when I go back. To Mexico, and I'm with my extended family. Like that feels like home. The food I'm eating with them, and so it's to me passing down recipes is important so that you you keep your home alive. I guess you can say. So now you mentioned home. We're going to talk more about how Rabbi Felipe Goodman follows that same dogma and seeing food as an indicator of home. And in this audio clip, he shares. His childhood memories of growing up in Mexico City, the types of street foods he ate, and the kosher adoptions his family made. Look, I had a very, very shielded childhood, but I also grew up at a time where Mexico was a beautiful country. Still, no crime, no violence, no, no、uh, drug traffickers, no, you know, none of those things. I mean, of course, the usual corruption, the devaluation of the peso, the economical woes, and the roller coaster. But I grew up at a time where, you know.、Uh, I would go to the park, and I remember, you know, getting balloons from the balloon vendor at the park that would walk with a hundred balloons in his hand, and listening to the accordion player, you know, at the park, and and buying all of these Mexican、uh, candies that I'm sure no American could ever eat in their life, like tamarind with chile and jicamas with with、uh, chile powder, chamoy, of course. <laughs>、um, it all goes back to food, no? But I also remember being able to. Walk in Mexico City and ride my bike everywhere I wanted to.、Uh, I remember, you know, the summers. I was not like a summer camp kid. I I would just stay home and I would ride my bicycle with my neighbors all day long. We would go and we would eat a different food every day, a different torta stand, that kind of stuff.、Mm-hmm. It was really great. And、uh, 
what was uniquely Mexican Jewish about growing up like a Jewish kid in Mexico City. So, for example, a lot of food that we ate uh, as Jews was actually Mexicanized. So, for example, uh, when my grandmother used to make gefilte fish, she would use to make it Veracruz style, mm-hmm. right? Which uh, she would take the gefilte fish and basically fry it in a tomato sauce with capers, uh, olives, potatoes, and, and chile and tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And it was fantastic. And I remember that very, very fondly. Uh, my wife's home, I mean, I dated my wife since I, she was 16, I was 19. We, I would go to it to her grandmother's home every, every Sunday. And she kept a strictly kosher home. But we would have, you know, mole de olla and quesadillas and everything. I mean, it, it, was, it was really integrated through the food in a tremendous way. Now, he mentioned street food. What can y'all tell me about street food? Um, you can't get good Mexican street food in fancy restaurants, okay? Um, the whole idea of street food is that they're food that you can find by ven- uh, with vendors on the street, right? And the best Mexican um, tacos are always going to be the ones from a lonchera or from a little taco stand. You you don't have to go to like you know nice restaurants to have good quality tacos. Usually, like that, somehow makes it not authentic, and they try to like jazz it up and it's like no, you just just keep it simple, right? Keep it simple, and you'll have authenticity, right? And I really really liked what he said that like he would just ride his bike and go across the city and eat all this like different street food, and there was like no i guess like boundaries to like what he can eat or what he can explore in the city and i think that's beautiful now listen to rabbi goodman one more time and hear him share about why las vegas is home to him now and how he feels nostalgic when he eats his food and misses mexico but can still go to the store to buy these authentic mexican products here in vegas i las vegas is my home for many reasons first of all I have lived now in Las Vegas almost as long as I lived in Mexico City. So I lived in Mexico City 23, 25 years. I've been here for 21 years, right? And uh, the other, the missing years are at the seminary in New York City. Um, so my memories from Las Vegas are equally as powerful as my memories from Mexico. They're later in my life, but I know people here that have shown me tremendous kindness. Right, uh, my congregation, by and large, has shown me tremendous kindness and uh, for all sorts of things. They, they've been grandparents to my children. They've been uh, tremendous friends in times of need and wonderful friends in times of joy. Um, I really feel like this is my home. By the way, look, I could go to Cardenas and just buy everything I want <laughs> that reminds me of Mexico, mm-hmm. including like I mean, I never was in this, when I was in New York. There was just no Mexican food in the supermarkets, right? Mm-hmm. It was all Puerto Rican products. Yeah. Here, I mean, I can go and buy, like, uh, tamarind jarritos. Any, like, it's me. It's, come on. Right? So, <laughs> so even if <clears throat> even if I felt nostalgic, even if I felt like... I'm, I always go back to food for some reason, right? Because that's how you were raised, with that food in your palate. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I always feel like there are things about Mexico, there are comfort things about Mexico that are here with me, and therefore I don't miss it that much, Right? Of course, I miss part of my family. I miss my wife's family. Uh, but if I left Las Vegas today, I would miss the people that are here too. And that's one of the things that has kept me here, right? I had opportunities to leave. 
uh, and I really never acted upon them because I am very happy and I'm very comfortable here. So he mentioned Cárdenas. What can y'all tell me about Cárdenas? So with me, my family moved here from Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, you can pretty much go across town and, you know, still find stores that sell your your food, right? And so when we moved here, we moved um, to the west side and the closest store that had anything that my family would eat was Cardenas. And so that's that's the store that my family pretty much took ownership of. Like when we moved here, that was the store where we would go buy our groceries and go buy like everything for the house. And so I remember walking in and it was like I was in L.A. all over again. I was like, oh, these are my people. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I love how when I would go to the grocery store with my parents, there was a chance that I'd see my friends there, too. Going to Cardenas or La Bonita or Super, all these different places. It's just so it's so great knowing that our community can find what they need. And when you were talking about like coming from L.A. to here, it was like I feel like I had the completely opposite experience where I moved to Las Vegas from Colorado. <laughs> and in Colorado, there's... Well, we don't have the stuff. Going back to what you said about how the community goes to um, all these different places, how they're always packed, and so, and how the these grocery stores welcome the community um, is wonderful. Rabbi Goodman talks about it too, and saying how he feels like he could never leave Vegas because of the community he's built here. Um, and I think that's something that that we see in these interviews is how the community here is so tight knit. Um, especially the Latinx community specifically and how everyone knows one another and how that's especially how why this project has grown so much. We just get new names every single time we do an interview. You know this person? Do you know this person? They would have a great story to tell and they would love to be in this project. And so the community here is absolutely fantastic. And it all goes back to, as he says, it all goes back to food and how it it's a way to really share our culture i know um for me specifically with um whenever i would go to mariana's growing up it was always when and even now to cardenas and you can actually find it now at walmart um chocolate abuelita (laughs) it is the the i'm gonna i don't know if it's mexican Mexican originally so it's mexican equivalent hot chocolate yeah equivalent to like nesquik I guess. For my family, my mom and I, we would Colombianize it. And so what we do and what I love to share with everyone is chocolate con queso. What? Yes. Okay. So. Continue. I know. I'm intrigued. Yeah, same. (laughs) Let me tell you about the beauty of chocolate con queso. So in Colombia, that is Traditionally, what we have for um, onces, I think. I'm pretty sure. You'd have it for breakfast. That's what I do. I do it for breakfast for any time I have chocolate, actually. Mm-hmm. Again, you have like a paleta, which is like a bar of chocolate. You put it in the, the olleta, which has a unique shape to it. And you put it in there with milk. And then you just grind it up. And this is just explaining the process of how to make chocolate. And then when you serve it, when it's nice and hot, you take mozzarella cheese i use just regular string cheese and i just string it up and put it inside what yes and you let it sit there for a while so that it melts and you just let it sit there and it adds a little hint of salt to the drink itself you have to make this for me yeah i will i will absolutely and then you can get a fork or a spoon and you just dip it in there and you just 
watch the the cheese just eloquently rise from the cup and just because it's all melted and it's like a chocolatey too like a beautiful white cascade or it, yes yeah. that is you couldn't have said it better myself <laughs> that is exactly what it is and then you can eat that up as you're drinking your chocolate when you're just you just want a little bite as you're drinking it and it's great my dad hates it but my mom and i love it and now as i'm sharing my traditions of chocolate con queso it shows how food is also where to share your culture and we see that in the businesses in the restaurant businesses here in las vegas let's hear a little bit from javier barajas owner and founder of mexican gourmet restaurant lindo michoacan on desert inn here he talks to his business partner about how this new restaurant is going to introduce las vegas to quality mexican food well when I told you that I, I that I went a little bit before, I mean, uh, what I used to tell Richard uh, uh, before I opened the restaurant, I said, Richard, my restaurant is going to be different because I'm going to teach everybody what real Mexican food is. Because if you notice, I even took Richard. I said, see the menu, Richard? Burritos, I mean, they don't have no steaks or chickens or or different dishes like beef tongue, like like moles, like a lot of seafood. I mean, in Michoacan, seafood is very popular. I say, and I wonder why they don't have a. Uh, I mean, and and the and, and I want to make the tortillas by hand too, you know. So, so, Lindo Michoacan is the restaurant that came to Las Vegas and told. Everybody, you know what? Mexican restaurant is, is, is very expensive, you know? M Mexican food is, is very, you know, we have a lot of steaks, we have a, a lot of chickens, we have a lot of uh, seafood dishes too, you know? It's, it's and, and, uh, can, can I ask a question here? Camarones, sardinadas is my favorite dish here, okay? But who is Tia Esther? Oh, she's the one that teach me the recipe. So she's Yes. Okay. She's, she's uh, my dad's sister. Because I have a few recipes from my family, like those is my, my, my aunt, Esther. She teach me the recipe. Yeah. I have some from my mom and uh, a lot from the seminar, from the nuns. And he talks about how there's a variety of different recipes and dishes in Mexican food and how he planned to share that with the rest of the community. It's not just tacos and burritos. He mentioned um, mole. mole. What, what else? But, Beef tongue. Yeah. And if Lengua. I could. Oh, yeah. I was going to. I wanted to comment on that because recently I had this experience with um, where my mom, she bought beef tongue because like she makes tacos de lengua. Um, which is like what it's that's what it's called. And I had my partner over and he was like, what's that? And I was like, I told him and it didn't even occur to me that like people from other cultures, because he's not um, he's not Mexican. People from other cultures would probably I mean, I don't know if this is an assumption, but they wouldn't get it. So for me, for a long time, I wouldn't eat them because I knew it was tongue. Right. And I remember this one time I told my mom, like, hey, mom, like, I'm hungry. Like, are you going to make something to eat? And she's like, oh, I have, I have, she said, carne stewing, right? Like, I have meat stewing. I was like, okay. Stewing? 
yeah, like stewing, like in oh, st- okay, yeah, in in the pot, right? And she's like, "I'm gonna make it right now. I'm, I'm just prepping it." And I was like, "Okay." And so I waited, and she made me like these tacos, and I ate it, and I knew it was like a different texture. And I was like, "I was like, mom, these are like super good. What are they?" And she's like, "She's like, son, es carne." I'm like, "But what kind of carne? Like, you haven't made this in a while. Like, I haven't like tasted." It. She's like, "Es de lengua," and I was like, "I'm too committed." And so like I finished them. And I knew in my head, I'm like, son de lengua, son de lengua. And, like, I've always, like, because, like, seeing it, like, it gives me the heebie-jeebies, like, you know? <laughs> and so, like, actually eating it at first without knowing and then realizing what it was. I'm like, I'm committed. This is good. I'm just going to, like, phase it out. You kind of just have to be open to the experience because if you're not open-minded, you're not really going to ex- you know, experience anything in life. No, yeah. I had the same experience with sopa de pata. It, oh. Yeah, so it's literally it's it's exactly what it is like sopa with, with a foot like it's literally the foot <laughs> chicken feet right yeah. yes or yes yeah there's several different kinds because I've had there's one where I've seen the actual like like the hoof of like the oh. cow I saw that but yes there is like sopa de pata with like the chicken feet and it's literally the feet and I was like oh my god this is like a witch's <laughs> brew or something like it was, I was like well, there's feet in here with the nails and everything and and I promise it's sanitary y'all and it's actually really really good um and so like like I totally get what you're saying once when you say that like if you're not open-minded you can't really like branch out into really learning about these different cultures. I spoke with an, my other friend Enrique on I did a project studying Mexican Mexican food and how it plays a role in staying connected to your roots. And my friend Enrique said that what's great about Mexican food and Mexican recipes is that you do with what you have and you make something great out of it. So let's talk about some Colombian restaurants and talking about some of those Colombian recipes. Here we have Olmedo Hoyos, owner and founder of Colombian restaurant Oiga Miravea. And here he's talking about the process of starting up his restaurant to convert it from what was originally a Mexican restaurant to a Colombian restaurant. Aunque no tenga mucha clientela, por ejemplo, este era, nosotros lo compramos, habían cuatro mexicanos, hubieron cuatro restaurantes mexicanos, uno chino. Ese restaurante, a donde yo estoy. colombiano. Buena publicidad, que de hecho me resultó tanta familia aquí que yo no sabía que había tanta familia mía aquí. Cuando yo en la primera página del tiempo puse una, puse mi publicidad en el mundo, televisión, familia Hoyos abre el primer restaurante colombiano en Las Vegas, oiga, mire, vea, ¡Pum! no, me llegó, familia, familia. He's talking about how he was able to take a struggling restaurant and turn it into the prosperous Colombian restaurant it is today. What do y'all think about that? In Las Vegas, there's already a ton of Mexican restaurants, and there's not an, enough of other restaurants from other Latin American countries. And to have the first, like, from this, you know, struggling restaurant, you got a prosperous Colombian restaurant. I think that's great. I think he did a great service to the community 
a great service to the Colombian community because even though they might be small, they're still here and they should be able to feel what I feel when I see a Mexican restaurant and walk in and have the food from, you know, their homeland. For other people to have that experience, I feel is very important. And I I really, truly admire um, Olmedo for doing that service to his community, to his, you know, patria. Similarly, I give major props to all of these pioneers who decided, like, I mean, who decided that they needed to be the first ones to open these restaurants, because I'm sure that once the first is up shortly after, people will come to find that there is a, a, a need for these places and then smaller ones can pop up. But I can understand how it'd be really scary um, starting a family run restaurant. You know, that's very personal um, and business. As far as I know, it can be really rough. <laughs> um, so to put your family's recipes out there to the public um, to let them judge you and then to let them ultimately, it seems like for a lot of these people, they were able to reach great success. I think that's that's so beautiful. <laughs> no, I totally agree. And I think that's something that we see like one of the great uh, Latinx values is family. And so I think and we've talked about that throughout this discussion is how family recipes, our roots, our home, all of it. And how we stay connected to all of that through food. I think that's absolutely, like you said, beautiful. And the fact that he was able to start this up as his family and how he was able to bring all these different flavors and items from from Colombia to Las Vegas. You walk in and you, you can buy typical snacks that you can find over there or chocolate colombiana. So like la abuelita version of chocolate in Colombian version in every culture you have them as in El Salvador their pasteles I think they're in Mexican culture too um it's shaped like a half half circle Mm -hmm. and it's filled with um it can be filled with cheese it can be filled with picadillo picadillo what's that picadillo is ground beef with corn Mm -hmm. not corn uh ground beef with carrots and papas Oh, oh, yeah, that. it can be stuffed with that for sure. Yeah, and then you fry them, right? Yeah. What is that called? Those are called, if I'm not mistaken, son quesadillas in Mexico. Oh, so yeah. I think that's something really cool that you can find a different version of this almost same recipe all across Latin America. So in a way, we're all different. We all have our different flavors, our different recipes, but we're still all very connected in a way. So even though... Y'all have your your Mexican roots and your Mexican recipes, and I have my Colombian and my Salvadorian recipes. We still have, we're still connected, and I think that's something that's really cool. And I think that Olmedo did a great job of sharing his culture, especially when he was able to share it in El Mundo, which is a local Spanish newspaper run by Eddie Escovedo. And I think it's awesome that he was able to use um, that community here that we have, that Latinx community, to help him market and share this new flavor that he was bringing to to Las Vegas. And yeah, so we've gotten to hear a little bit about the flavors that make up the Latinx community and the various members of our community that show the value of food in our culture. Well, thank you for joining us in our conversation of comida and all the delicious flavors that make up our Latinx community here in Las Vegas. And a special thanks to Elsa and Monza for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. And make sure to join us next time when we talk about art and the artistic and creative side of the Latinx community in Las Vegas. Thank you for listening to Latinx Voices Unfilled series. 
Each episode features smaller parts of larger interviews with community members. These interviews were conducted by research assistants at the Oral History Research Center. To hear these interviews in full, contact UNLV Special Collections and Archives at 702-895-2234. Special thanks to Yoni Kessler for our theme music and to performing musicians Ricardo Arana, Tassos Peltekis, Marshall Peterson, and Spencer Pfeiffer. Audio engineering by Ron George. Production engineering by Kevin Kroll. This podcast is a production of KUNV Radio and the UNLV Rebel Media Group.